0: Whether sending messages, shopping in an app, or watching videos, modern consumers expect information and responsiveness to be near instant in their apps and devices. From a developer's perspective, this means clean code and a fast database. Apache Druid is a database built to power real-time analytic workloads for event-driven data, like user-facing applications, streaming, and anything else that requires instant data visibility. Druid offers low latency for OLAP-style queries, time-based partitioning, fast search and filtering, and out-of-the-box integration with Apache Kafka, AWS Kinesis, HDFS, AWS S3, and many more. In this episode, we talk with Eric Tescheter, field CTO at Imply, Fellow at Splunk, an experienced developer who's worked on a large swath of back-end infrastructure projects, largely focusing on Druid. We discuss the use cases and power of Apache Druid. Eric,
1: welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: You were one of the founding members of the Druid Project, or at least one of the early members of the Druid Project. And the Druid Project came out of Metamarkets. What were the evolutionary pressures that Metamarkets was undergoing that created Druid?
2: Yeah, so basically, so start, starting back from the beginning, when I joined Metamarkets, the kind of, if I get the, the full origin story almost, the founders were going after, they were trying to build effectively a derivative market on top of advertising auctions and basically analyze ad like internet advertising auctions, understand their, understand the inventory, the pricing and all of that such that they could actually create a derivative market on top of them and say, offer advertisers protections and stuff from things. And when I was talking with them about that, I was like, that's an interesting idea. I know nothing about it but they showed me this kind of dashboardy thing that they were giving back to the advertising auction houses in order to like try and effectively be like well give us your data we'll make these derivatives and we're going to give you this dashboard thing in return type of a thing. When I saw that I was like oh that's something I know about. I'm going to join you guys and and work with you. When I joined The data was initially in a single instance uh, green plum. So basically effectively Postgres, where the data was in there. We had it powered off of, it was powering the UI. All of that was great. This was 2011 or so. We, uh, that was right at the heart of, or at, at the very beginning of everyone saying big data, big data. So the the next thing we went to when we were like, oh, if we want to scale up Greenplum, we're going to have to pay them a bunch of money in order to go distributed. So that that's kind of hard. So
1: remind me, Green Greenplum was Greenplum just productized Postgres? Is that what it was at the time?
2: Well, it's distributed Postgres. It's basically Postgres that they adjusted to basically be able to run on multiple threads. And so, one query can go across uh, multiple processors, but they also took it out in a distributed fashion and, and kind of handled it. I'm, I'm not an expert in, in Greenplum, but that's my, under, that's my understanding of it. Anyway, after that, we jumped into kind of big data, went with some Hadoop jobs, pre-processing numbers, throwing them into HBase, powered the UI off of that. These jobs kept growing and growing in how long they took to do stuff. At one point, basically every time we would add a new dimension, it would take longer and longer. One of our customers, we added like a few new dimensions and all of a sudden something that was taking 12 hours started taking over a day. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, that's not good. What do we do next? I started thinking back to some people I worked with at LinkedIn who worked on some search infrastructure There were some people I worked with at Ning before that uh, in kind of data stuff who had often said like, they had made statements about like, I mean, talk about data at that time, but they were always like, this isn't large data. I can just throw this in memory and do stuff with it. Anyway, from those statements, I started thinking about, oh, I wonder what happens if we just throw this in memory. So I then grabbed the data, just threw it in memory and was like, well, how fast can I add up these numbers if it's just in memory? found out the answer was super fast. And I was like, oh, okay, I think this is what we build. I think there's a there's an email that a blog post was written about recently that I sent out saying, hey, I'm going to try this thing as a background task. And uh, that's, that's when I started Druid.
1: So is the key innovation of Druid sort of the, just the timing where nobody was doing in-memory open-source data warehousing-like systems at the time?
2: Honestly, the the question of the key innovation is hard for me to like, believe like I'm honestly answering. Because if I look at Druid itself, what it has inside of it, like, I don't know that there's actually new ideas in it. And you can probably go back to all technology, especially now is that there's not really that many new ideas. It's all old ideas kind of recombine differently or you approach a problem with a different a different set of assumptions you combine the old ideas in a different way and all of a sudden something comes out and so if i would if if i could say that there's some new innovation it would be that just i came at the problem with a different set of assumptions a set of assumptions that oh maybe the data can all just be in memory Maybe we can just run with it, apply a bunch of old ideas to that. And and it turns out it it, it works out okay.
1: Okay. So if I'm getting the context right, you're at MetaMarkets, you're building an ad tech, Dashboard. a, a, a high, high volume ad tech product, like ad tech, yes. a super high volume yes, bidding and markets-based information. Mm-hmm. And the application was let's dashboard this stuff, which is actually a different application than what we would consider data warehousing, right? It's kind of different, right? Yes. It's, it's the operational analytics database
2: idea. Uh, y- yes. Yeah, you could, if you, if you were to categorize it with the categories that exist today, yes, you would, you would definitely go into the operational analytics world. Definitely, it did not start in the BI world, except for perhaps like the fact that it's dashboarding. A lot of times, if you say dashboards, people will jump to the likes of Tableau or Looker or something like that. But yeah, operational analytics is definitely the the category that I would place it in, given the words that exist today. At the time, there wasn't really an operational analytics space that people that people much talked about, at least not that I'm aware of anyway.
1: Okay. Let's talk real quick. Architecturally speaking, what's the difference between an operational analytics database and a data warehouse like Snowflake?
2: Well, so the difference between an operational analytics data warehouse or operational analytics infrastructure and a data warehouse, I I'd almost say that it, it, like at the heart of it, When you step back from the technology, you get to slightly different requirements or kind of different people who are actually using the infrastructure and trying to do things with it. And that coming out of that is probably where uh, differences in infrastructure come. But at the end of the day, in the fullness of time and fullness of investment, all to a certain degree, infrastructure tends to converge towards being able to be used in multiple kind of multiple areas. But if we compare the, the kind of personas of, say, operational analytics versus business intelligence and the business intelligence side, your user base tends to be, one, it's all employees of your own company, usually. is business analysts and that type of person. There's actually been many, many years of training in uh, this language called SQL that everyone knows about how to query data, how to interact with it, how to work with it. And so like SQL as a language, it's just solidified and exists in the business intelligence space. And if you don't speak SQL, you cannot play in the business intelligence space because all of the people who use it, all of the people who operate in that world expect SQL. All of the tools that they use expect SQL. And so like that's one difference to a certain degree between the infrastructures. And so if you want to be in business intelligence, one, you have to speak SQL. Another thing is that in kind of traditional business intelligence, data warehousing, data lakes, uh, latency is not as big of a concern. It's, of course, everyone wants results faster. You always want results faster. No one's going to tell you, I want slow results. I think I remember driving on 101 and seeing a a big billboard for Reddit saying, No one ever says they want a slow database. Like, that's true. No one's going to ever tell you that they want something to be slow. But at the same time, in a business analytics, in a business intelligence world, you can usually kind of deal with extra latency. You can deal with a 30 second query, you can deal with a minute query and kind of still get your job done. Switching over to the more operational analytics side of things where you have vendors like uh, Splunk, I'd say Druid at least started in that space. There's a number of other kind of options as well, but these things, when Druid started, the way to query it was all JSON. It was JSON objects over HTTP. There was no such thing as SQL on top of Druid. Splunk as well has its own language called SPL, which is its own language for interacting with the data. And in this operational analytics space, there's not the base assumption that thou must speak, speak SQL. There's more the question of how are you exposing the data or the answers? And are those answers accessible to the person who needs them? And so if the person who needs an answer is someone operating an ad auction house, then great. They look at a UI, they interact with that, they get their answer through that. If the person who needs an answer is someone in IT or a cybersecurity professional, they just need to be able to ask and answer the question. They don't necessarily care about it being SQL. A lot of times you also actually want it to be UI driven rather than actually query driven because you wanna be able to scale out the team of people that's interacting with this data. And anytime you need to scale that out, you need to get it into something that's uh, easy to train and kind of UI driven. And so I'd, I'd say those are some of the differences in thinking when you're approaching something in the operational analytics space versus the business intelligence space.
1: Again, to summarize, the query pattern is simply different, right? Because on average, the operational analytics database is, is, has to refresh a lot. I guess, right? Because you're you're kind of middleware for, or your backend technology for, again, this dashboarding use case, this real-time analytics use case, this real-time aggregation use case. You really want data freshness, whereas the data warehouse is fulfilling a lot of applications where data freshness is less of an idea.
2: So yes, there's data freshness, but there's also, I think data warehouses very rarely show up in terms of kind of UIs that you give to, say, a call center. Like, you're not going to expose a Tableau dashboard or a Looker dashboard to all of the people receiving calls in your call center. That's, uh, that, or at least that's not something I've heard of someone doing. There might be someone out there doing that. Where an operational analytics database, you would actually take it, throw a UI on top of it and actually give it and give that UI to people in your call center so that they can look up some issue that might've happened. And so like, because of that, there is this data freshness side of it where something just happened, I need to be able to see it. But there's also like, if that call center has to sit there for a minute, two minutes waiting on results and you've got 500 people, a thousand people answering calls all doing that, you're gonna slow down your call center significantly and call centers are already a fairly expensive item for any company that's kind of operating one. And so there's also that the kind of quickness and the fact that it's an actual application that you're giving to somebody to use rather than kind of uh, something that's given to an analyst to basically crunch some numbers and then come back with an answer at some point in time in the future. If that I'm not sure if that helps clarify or not, but.
1: No, it definitely makes sense. It's very interesting how sometimes open source projects come from unexpected circumstances. But I look at the ad tech space and the ad tech space is one of those areas where really perform, like it is kind of a zone where there's so much, um, high frequency stuff going on. The, the, the amount of money that you can make is really spectacular. So it just does create a kind of a Petri dish pressure, set of pressures on building new technology. What was the closest thing to a Druid before Druid?
2: The closest thing to a Druid before Druid is, well, so I can say the answer by talking about the things that we explored. So uh, right around the time uh, OpenTSDB was a thing, uh it was just kind of starting up and we explored that some that's based on HBase. There was uh Green Plum at uh, Vertica, kind of the all of those, the distributed database vendors, I think, were other options for what we would have needed, but like. Honestly, that, that was the landscape of things available for for what we needed, was that there was the big data, the H base based things that relied on a, a good chunk of pre-processing or the distributed database vendors. And so I, I don't know that there what yeah, there weren't, like, and each of them have different options. The distributed database vendors are, have been thinking the BI world a lot more than they've been thinking the kind of operational analytics world as we know it today. The kind of HBC open OpenTSDB world, given that it's a TSDB, it tend to be written under the assumption that one time series is dense, meaning that it receives lots of data points over the course of time, where data for ad tech auctions or data for kind of this operational observability, Once you start including enough dimensions, you get very disjoint time series. You get very sparse time series. A time series might exist for just one data point over the lifetime of even the auction house. And you start to see this some in infrastructure monitoring as well, where people have tended to use TSDBs. but now with the advent of containers and more ephemeral infrastructure, they're starting to push on the limits of the TSDBs because they're exploding cardinality. They're growing up in cardinality because a container might come up, be around for a minute to five minutes and then go away. That creates a whole bunch of time series in the TSDB, adds cardinality, pushes the limits of of cardinality. And so we see, anyway, those were some of the limitations even back then when we were looking at open TSDB for this use case as well. And part of the reason why I think even today, there's a bit of a shift as people want kind of, more business-looking answers into their data, they tend to, to start looking at the things like Druid and other things in the, in the strong operational analytics space.
1: When you had this key innovation of let's do it all in memory, what does that mean? Does that mean that you literally had to take a database and fork it to use memory, or you wrote a database from scratch and had it access memory what does it um, mean to just...
2: Yeah, what what it meant was, so like the first, I, I mentioned the first thing I did was said, well, what happens if I add up all these numbers in, in memory? Because effectively what we were doing for the dashboard was just adding up a bunch of numbers, right? And so the first thing I did was I took all the numbers, I loaded, I, I created a long array in memory I put all the numbers in the long array and I did a for loop over them and added them up and was like, how long does that take? And it turns out computers are really, really fast at just adding up numbers in a for loop. And I was like, oh, that's fast. And then from there, it was basically Druid was all new code. It wasn't taking something and adjusting it. It was like, oh, okay, let's take all the data that I've got. And the very first version actually, so it's written in Java, right? The very first version, was pure primitive arrays. It was arrays of floats, arrays of ints, arrays of those objects purely in the JVM heap loaded up and effectively for loops written on top of them. Over time, it's evolved greatly to where rather than being primitive arrays in memory, it's now effectively files that get memory mapped in and then native, native memory access is used to access the data in those there's also stuff where uh, we do decompression on the fly, compression and decompression on the fly in order to shrink the data and various things like that. But the very, very first version was basically int arrays, long arrays, float arrays, sitting there on the JVM heap, loaded up and and answering queries.
1: So meaning you're doing memory management in the JVM and that's you're just managing bits and bytes in the JVM. That's your system of record for serving these operational analytic systems?
2: I mean, that's where it started. I wouldn't say that the memory management in the JVM was the system of record. The, like, the fact that we were loading it up into the JVM and the fact that we needed, we needed to be able to lose nodes and all of that and be able to recover <coughs> meant that basically the data was first placed into what we call segment files. And so it was organized and placed in segment files. And then that code in the JVM knew how to read the segment files into the, into the in-memory arrays and then serve the queries on them. And so the, if, if, if I were to call something a system of record, it would be the segment files because any node could always pull down a new segment file, load it up, and serve queries off of it.
1: What was the schema of the segment file?
2: Homegrown, made-up me writing integers into a file it it wasn't it it's it's not something that has a nothing fancy
1: nothing it's not like a parquet kind of thing no no no, nothing
2: fancy enough with a name it was like oh i've got an array of integers let me put this array of integers as bytes into a file flush file close file done
1: you know what's funny is i think a lot of people haven't experienced java as a programming language to do that kind of stuff in Java's really good for doing that kind of stuff. I worked at a trading company that, had, that built its own low level data transfer systems. And Java's great for doing that kind of stuff.
2: Yes, it is nice. Like, it, it's very good. The thing, as we, as kind of Druid evolved and the development evolved for it, the one thing that I realized, so I mentioned earlier that we moved a lot of the data out of in-memory data, like pure in-memory arrays and into memory mapped files that we're then doing native access for. One thing that we've run into as as we've done that is that Java's interactions with native memory and just its rigidity and how it needs to be able to apply object structure to to native memory actually makes us do contortions that like if it was written if if we had something in c or c++ where you can just be like hey here's a pointer by the way this pointer is pointing to this type of data so just read it like that and don't like don't think about it there could be some some nicer things and so like Java is definitely nice for doing this sort of stuff, especially when you're keeping things in the JVM. Once you start going across the JVM native boundary, you get into a little bit of some kind of contextual mismatch or some mismatch between what what you want to be able to do and what Java allows you to do. Even though over the kind of the evolution of Java, it's like with the promotion of unsafe to like with the separation of unsafe into the things you really shouldn't use and okay, these things are okay to use. And some of that, like I see movement in the Java space that, that will probably make it easier to work with native memory from the JVM. But right now, even today, I'd, I'd say that once you start crossing that boundary, you, can, you, you run into interesting and uh, I'm, I'm not sure if they're fun, but you run into interesting problems.
1: And so that brings us to what was the moment when uh, you had, when Fanjin started implied Fa- Fangin left market Metamarkets to start imply or started that like after Metamarkets is acquired. I don't remember the lineage there.
2: Yeah. So the, the way things worked. So at Metamarkets started building Druid, we hired. So, Hired Fang Jin, hired Jian. Vadim was there from uh, very early stages. We all worked together kind of building up Druid, doing doing more and more stuff with it. So at one point I moved on from Metamarkets, worked with a nonprofit for a little while, kind of Fangjin, Jin, and, and then they stayed at Metamarkets, were working there for a bit. And then probably about a year to... After I had moved on, they were, they were like, hey, we could start a thing around this. They went, started a thing, uh, had various conversations with metamarkets to try to, to work out something amicable. Did stuff, eventually started. This was before metamarkets got acquired by Snap. I forget how many years. I think they, they existed as an entity for multiple years before metamarkets got acquired by Snap. Uh, but I, I forget exactly how many as well. But yeah.
1: And the market opportunity for Imply is essentially we're going to take the operational analytics database known as Druid that was built at MetaMarkets and we're going to generalize it as a service and make operational analytics as good as it can be.
2: So I actually do work at Imply now. I started uh, fairly recently, but I did not work at Imply at that point in time. So I can't. I can't speak too much to some of the, the internals of that conversation. What I can speak to is what Imply did in the community. Because even though I wasn't at Imply, I've been a user of Druid at all the companies that I've been working at Yahoo, Splunk, all of those companies. And Imply effectively, they have been driving the community for a long time. Most of the development. Most of the development that, especially the development that helped push Druid closer to the business intelligence space. So, like the development of SQL, the uh, kind of SQL operational layer, all of the uh, connectivity with SQL, the querying, and all of that were primarily developments that came out of Imply. And so, if I look at that, I, I would say that, like, the thing that Imply provided through the development of Druid was. Really helping it get get solidified as something that can be used in the business intelligence space, helping get it connected to the other tools and the kind of language of choice of business intelligence, SQL. And I think that that adoption of SQL uh, definitely, it like it helped grow and and uh, gain adoption for the project because. People just like SQL, it's so much easier. Everyone knows SQL. It's so much easier when you can speak SQL to throw data in and get it worked with. There are benefits to not SQL, but at the end of the day, like from an adoption perspective, speaking SQL is is worth so much more. And I'd, I'd say that like, that's a major contribution that I saw coming out of imply, kind of from the community angle.
1: Yeah. As far as a platform for building operational analytics systems, to the extent that operational analytics is a real category, which I believe it is, I think it's very good marketing, but I also think it's a real category. What's the alternative? Is the main alternative, is like when I think about the competitor, the primary competitor to people using Apply as a service, to me seems like custom systems, basically custom dashboarding systems, right? Or is it Tableau? What's the competitor?
2: If you're going into so from the infrastructure perspective, the other similar so somewhat similar systems. um, There's a system called Pinot.
1: Oh yeah, Pinot, 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 which which
2: came out of LinkedIn and Uber, and there's an interesting story. Well, anyway, back when we were open sourcing Druid out of Meta Markets, we I reached out to people I knew at Netflix, LinkedIn, and Facebook, saying, "Hey." we want to open source this thing. We want to work together with some people to to run it like so that there's actually more than just us open sourcing this thing. Are you interested? Did kind of tech talks at the various places, had conversations. Uh, Netflix was interested. They picked it up and deployed it and ran with it. And we basically gave them access to the code ahead of actually open sourcing so that they would work with us to help us uh, open it up. LinkedIn didn't, Take the code and run with it. I forget if we gave them access to the code or not. i'm I'm fuzzy on that detail, but a few a year or two later, there was this project called Apache Pinot that at least from the uh, architecture diagram, they talk about historical nodes and real-time nodes and stuff like that, which was kind of the architecture diagram that we used. and I was like, oh, okay. so maybe they didn't borrow the code, but at least like the idea of how things work was able to kind of take them in a place that they felt good about. And so anyway, that's another one. And then there's something else that uh, people look at called ClickHouse, which is something it's kind of, it's in the same, people look at it together, at least from the, the infrastructure perspective, when they're comparing Druid, Pinot and ClickHouse, they they'll tend to kind of compare these. At the same time, in terms of kind of operational model and the way in which the infrastructure scales, Druid kind of adopts a a separation of ingestion from querying that allows you to scale out your ingestion independently from the actual querying. And, And so as you scale up larger and larger, this is a significant benefit because a lot of times... Your query load won't change, but your ingestion will, and you need to add nodes there, but you don't want to impact your your query load in order to add those nodes. Or vice versa, your ingestion load stays the same, but you need to add more nodes in order to handle more queries, and you don't want adding more nodes to, like, allow you to force you to then reshard your data and do all of that sort of stuff. And so Druid adopts this model that actually separates them to allow you to think of each one independently and scale it independently, where ClickHouse adopts the, we'll put data and query it all from the exact same node, which has some other benefits in terms of just like firing it up and, and running it and getting started because there's only one node to run. But as you like step up, if you want to scale out, you have to reshard data and reallocate it and and stuff like that. And so there's kind of technical di- there's architectural differences there. But if I had to pick infrastructure pieces that people compare, I, I would say those are the three.
1: Gotcha. Tell me some architectural challenges or engineering challenges or software. I mean, you're an infra guy, and you're intrigued by the infrastructure challenges. Can you tell me what are the canonical trade-offs of the Druid database? Yeah. By the way, Druid Druid is is effectively like a... Mostly uh, like a read-only database, right? It's like you're not really writing to it, right? Or am I wrong about that?
2: You're... So those words do not correctly capture the idea, I'd say. It's built under the assumption that... (laughs) you have a stream of data flowing in that is primarily always being appended to your data set. And so like it's built under the assumption that that's the primary way in which data comes in. Now, being born in ad tech, in ad tech, even if you collect all of your impressions and ad auctions and all of that, it turns out there's a certain amount of bots and other fraudulent activity out there. And so people always want to go, they want to detect the fraudulent impressions, do that, correct it, restate the data and rerun. And so like even in ad tech from the, the, like even from the early days, we had a need to be able to rewrite data. And so you, we had to be able to mutate it in some fashion. Now, Druid doesn't enable you to say, okay, find this one row and rewrite just that one row, but keep everything else the same. And so from that angle, it's not the same kind of mutability as a traditional relational database. It's more, okay, take this chunk of data and replace it with this new chunk of data. And the new chunk of data might have some things removed. It might have some things restated. It might have some new things added to it. But effectively, take this chunk, like take this day's worth of data and replace it with this other day's worth of data, which effectively allows you to rewrite things in a way that, that is actually useful for a significant number of use cases, one of them being fraud and ad tech, but there's a number of other cases where that's sufficient enough rewrite capability for what you need. And so it does allow for writes, but the primary mechanism of ingestion tends to be a stream of data. It can also do batch ingestion, and actually Druid started with only batch ingestion, but over time we eventually connected it up to Kafka and streams. And like, once we, once we really got that solidified, I'd say that uh, streaming stream-based ingestion has, but has kind of taken over in terms of the primary use case and the primary way of getting data in.
1: Okay. Anyway, tell me a little bit more about the canonical problems. Like what are the canonical challenges? Is
2: cost an issue? Cost is definitely like cost is an issue. One thing that was very much top of mind for me, as well as cascading failures, having worked with other infrastructure at other points in time and uh, carrying a pager, I've grown allergic of cascading failures to where I I don't like them. Like one, a a failure somewhere happens. It always happens. And if the system can't degrade gracefully in the face of that, then you end up with larger problems and the inability to self-heal. And so like that, that's one of the things that was top of mind in, in kind of building this up, especially as a small startup, because don't want to be woken up every night at, at 2 a.m., right? And so like some of the stuff to do there, so I was mentioning earlier the separation of ingestion from query workload and the ability to scale those axes independently. That also lends itself to making the cascading failure problem easier, where if each kind of zone is its own world then a failure in one zone say the ingestion zone doesn't necessarily have to impact the query side the query side can keep going along it can keep happening even while ingestion is having some problems you then fix those problems data starts showing up great at the same time query you could have problems on the query side without impacting ingestion so In some other systems, sometimes if you get too much query load, you end up falling behind an ingestion and all of a sudden your message bus or the data, the system that's handling the data coming in starts to hit retention limits and you get like backups all the way up the system, which doesn't end well. And kind of the separation of ingestion and query protects from that sort of stuff, where even if there, even if something bad happens on your query side your ingestion system, you can be relatively confident that it'll keep going. There's another, uh, another couple of things where when we ingest data and generate segments, and there's something called a handoff, where basically the data is handed off from the servers that deal with the stream of data to the servers that deal with effectively the querying of historical data. And these are the differences between what we call real-time nodes and historical nodes. And that, that handoff is something that's managed by a coordinator, a coordination node that kind of takes data from one, hands it to another. And in some of the logic there, there's various throttling mechanisms that tries to ensure that when a node goes down, you don't suddenly get a thundering herd of like, oh my God, we must all load brand new data and get it showing up and and everything. It's, It's a much more metered problem because without that, I've, de- I've run into issues before with other systems where a node goes down, all of a sudden, all of the other nodes are trying to re-replicate data that starts saturating network interfaces. You get cascading failures, badness happens, and you're like, okay, nothing's working at all. And so like there, there's a number of things like there where I'd, I'd say cascading failures are one of those things that I definitely thought heavily about in, in the development. There's also the separation of compute and storage where Druid actually started with separation of compute and storage. There was no data pre-allocated or or existing on any node. And uh, the data would always get loaded in response to queries coming in, which is something lots of people uh, tout right now is, oh my God, this is awesome. We actually started with that. And that, but for our use case where we were really trying to get high latency interaction What that led to was a very slow start in the first query that came about where we would have to download, say for that first query, we would have to download 100 gigabytes, 200 gigabytes of data, and that just takes time. And so the evolution of the actual software given our use case actually required us to pre-allocate segments to nodes so that they're sitting on the node and available for query ahead of time. Because what was happening before we did that is every time I would release new software, I would also run a script that would basically ran a query for every one of our tenants in order to preload the data so that their data would be hot and ready and preloaded when they actually came around. And so there, there's uh, another couple of things there that where kind of we started one way And then because of our use case or because of uh, things that we ran into, we adjusted and and changed to the way things are today.
1: Gotcha. I wish we could talk longer because I have a ton of questions remaining. But I think my last question is basically, I want to know in like, I don't know, three to five minutes, what this thing looks like as a distributed system. Like, can you just give it Kubernetes operators and make it run like that? or do you have to do a lot of complex operational work?
2: So at Splunk, actually, we developed a Kubernetes operator and open-sourced it. And, and it's, been, it, it's in, been in the community now for about two years, and the community's kind of taken it and run forward with it. And so there is a Kubernetes operator for it right now where you can just kind of grab that and uh, deploy for the open source. All of the companies that are doing any Thing with Druid tend to have their own method of deployment as well, where to try to effectively remove the the cost and and burden of of starting up the infrastructure from someone who's trying to adopt it. At the end of the day, though, it started it started with just Java processes on independent machines. There was no Kubernetes in 2011. There wasn't like the idea that you needed to manage multiple different services wasn't a common thing that people dealt with. And so there wasn't really a strong infrastructure for that. And so it was built as just a bunch of independent Java processes. And then how you choose to deploy them happens to be how you choose to deploy them. What we have now uh, Kubernetes operator or doing whatever the, the commercial offerings are is probably the simplest ways to get going. Especially if you're not comfortable or familiar with the JBM.
1: Gotcha. Anything else we should close on? Actually, are you working with uh with Jod? Are you working with Jod much at imply?
2: I am working with Jad, yes.
1: I really like I really like Jad. I'm I'm friends with him.
2: Nice. Nice. I am also a fan.
1: He's uh, he's pretty funny.
2: He's, uh, he's, the sense of humor I run into is somewhat dry. He's really dry. That's
1: what I was about to say. That's, that's the word to describe him. He's dry. Yes.
2: yes. Great guy. I'm, I'm super excited to be with the Implied team now. I'm enjoying all the people I'm working with, Jad included, and kind of doing that stuff. It's, it's fun days.
1: One weird question. Do you think you guys, are you guys going to do anything with WebAssembly?
2: WebAssembly. Do you know what that is? I'm wanting to believe it's assembly language running in the browser to make it faster to do things, but I'm, it's, I'm half making stuff up right
1: now. You can, you can, it's, uh, it's language agnostic, language agnosticism in the browser. You can run Rust modules in the browser.
2: Wow. Interesting. I, um, given the degree to which I'm aware of what it is, I have not thought about using it for anything. So, uh. I'd say that, but that isn't that is an interesting idea. One
1: so Dropbox uses it to compress files before they send files over the wire.
2: Oh okay, so like the, the a better web worker type of a thing. Yeah. Like you can do that. I think that's actually an interesting area of development. I think as in terms of just computer science development. We there tends to be a pendulum that swings between uh, centralized run everything in central servers and shove things out to fat clients and do things on the edge. And kind of, if you look over history, I think you see the pendulum swinging between client-side processing to centralized server processing to client-side. And to me, most recently, the pendulum had been swinging to more centralized stuff. And I see it starting to move back to, no, 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 we can do more, more stuff on the client. And that, it just kind of strikes me as another interesting thing to do there, where I think that there's going to be a number of innovations probably that come out of bundling a lot more complex logic, say on all the browsers, because if you think of it, all the browsers to a certain degree, form a botnet, and you can have a whole bunch of stuff done on a lot of different machines by just uh, pushing it in the browser. Anyway, so I, I think it is, it's interesting just from a philosophical standpoint of that pendulum swinging between centralized and client server. But I, for me personally, I haven't, I haven't thought any more than that about how useful it would be or, or where it could be applied.
1: Well, I look forward to hearing any perspectives you have in that regard. It's, it seems like a pretty transformative technology. I don't really know what it's going to do, though. I just think you can build fatter clients with it. You could build more more interactive, richer clients with it. It feels like you should be sending compressed data over the wire and uh, decompressing it on the client side.
2: Right. I mean, because browsers have supported Gazip compression and stuff like that for a while, but it's it's not just that compression. It's actually like building in schemas to the data and and truly getting it into a binary format before sending it in, which can. Do do y'all use protobufs? There is, you can ingest data from Protobuf. You can ingest it from Protobuf. You can ingest it from, I'm blanking on the the one that Google has. Or wait, is that Protobuf? Avro, not Google.
1: Avro's the Facebook one, I think.
2: Right, yeah. You could do it from Avro. You could do it from Protobuf. Protobuf is the Google one. Thrift, I've even seen connectors for pulling stuff in from Thrift formatted data as well. But yeah. I mean with
1: protobuf so so can you just does it make sense in in this context does it make sense to in an ideal world send everything over a protobuf like interface cuz protobuf is like it's both compressed and schemat right that's pretty useful right isn't that exactly what you want
2: so protobuf i'd say for a lot of the a lot of the serialization strategies the big thing is actually the big benefit that really comes out of it is standardization across an enterprise and it's knowing that all of the services and all of the things in the, whatever ecosystem that enterprise has are speaking the same format. Like that that's the really big benefit that comes from these standardized formats. Of course, like once you have that standardization, you can add optimizations around compression. You can add optimizations around binary storage and all of that. And so that's some of the stuff that you get from Protobuf. When you're thinking about it from the pure kind of, tech head space, you look at the binary and compression and storage size and all of that. But the real benefit of adopting one of these things is the standardization that like driving that standardization across your organization so that you can know that the services are all kind of speaking the same thing. And then as a side effect of that, of course, if you standardize on protobuf having your data also be in protobuf makes tons of sense. If you've standardized on thrift, having your data also be on thrift makes tons of sense. Like it's, it, to me, it's, it's actually a question of standardization and then the optimization that you can drive by standardizing on one thing rather than like, oh, this thing is better than that thing or that thing is better than, than this thing for these reasons. Does that make sense?
1: It does make sense. Pretty interesting. A lot of interesting architecture stuff to talk about. We've come a long way since the early days of Hadoop,
2: haven't we? Yes. It's a very different world. One thing I'm happy about is the word big data doesn't get used very much. It's kind of uh, lost its, its, its place in the... You know, I, I heard data is the new oil. Yes, I have heard that one. I've heard that data is the new oil. I don't know. There's a lot of fun sayings.
1: Cool. Well, this has been great. Congrats on joining Imply. And bright future for the company. I mean, embedded analytics, I want it everywhere. I want it across all my things.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to chat. For sure. uh,
1: And you, so wait, so you you built this thing, right? Like you were the first person to build it, right? You were the founding engineer on on the Druid project, right?
2: The way I say it is I wrote the first line of code. I had the honor of writing the first line of code. Since then, many people have written many lines of code inside of the project. And so like, The project that exists today, it's not my one line of code that built it, but that first line of code was authored by me.
1: That's great, man. Congrats. Congrats on having the boldness to do that. Great talking. Let's do it again sometime. You too. Bye.